Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. I'm the specialist digital editor for the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong, the only place in the world which has responded to the continued threat of COVID-19 and the spread of new variants by ordering the mass killing of all hamsters purchased in the days before Christmas. But while some Hong Kongers are vowing to either free their hamsters or even create an underground network to harbour them, Overnight, the European Parliament announced its own proposals for freedom in Hong Kong. These are resolutions about, quote, the continued deterioration of media freedoms in Hong Kong and include a direct challenge to Hong Kong's independent status at the World Trade Organization. There's also an offer to digitally archive the online content that's been banned or taken down as Hong Kong news organizations are targeted under the national security law imposed on the city by Beijing or using colonial-era sedition laws left behind by the British. We're going to hear from our man in Brussels, Finbar Birmingham, about what this means, as well as analysis of Beijing's continued economic punishment of Lithuania over its relationship with Taiwan. Today, we're seeing data showing a 90% drop in Lithuania's trade with China in the past year. Finbar's got more details on how it's not just Lithuania feeling the pain of Beijing's economic coercion in Europe right now, but also, given the European Union's infamously long and complicated processes when it comes to deciding anything, does this mean essentially that Beijing's weaponization of trade actually works? And then we're headed to Japan. After signing an historic agreement with Australia over defence cooperation to start the new year, we're looking at a very high-level meeting between Japan's defence and foreign ministers and their counterparts in France. Was this about Taiwan and semiconductors, or French interests in the Pacific? Or is this more about concerns for the future of defence and diplomatic leadership from a very divided United States, which is looking more and more at war with itself? We're going to hear analysis about this meeting from our East Asia correspondent Maria Xiao, and she's also going to update us on what is starting to look like the beginnings of a Southeast Asian arms race, with the Philippines announcing this week it is purchasing cruise missiles from India. They're not the only customer India has in mind in this region, and you'll hear from Maria on how this has caused for some considerable attention from Chinese defence analysts. That's all coming at you in a week where the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists the organization co-founded by Albert Einstein and Robert Oppenheimer 75 years ago announced that the hands of their doomsday clock remained steady at 100 seconds to midnight. 
This is what Rachel Bronson, the president of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, had to say. The doomsday plot continues to hover dangerously, reminding us how much work is needed to ensure a safer and healthier planet. We must continue to push the hands of the clock away from midnight. The good news? We've gone 75 years without global nuclear annihilation. The bad news? It's only late January. North Korea has already test-fired four missiles into the Sea of Japan, and the Russian military continues to mass on the borders of Ukraine and Belarus. The clock is ticking. On with the show. Finbar Birmingham, we start 2022 with all eyes in Europe focused on the ongoing military buildup of Russian forces on the border with Ukraine, and now once again in Belarus. But this week you've been reporting on renewed interest from the European Parliament over Hong Kong. And it's not the killing of thousands of hamsters imported from the Netherlands. It's something much less tangible that we're learning. People only miss once it's gone. Media freedom. There's a renewed call for sanctions on senior figures in the Hong Kong government and security establishment. But Finbar, what of this threat to challenge Hong Kong's status at the World Trade Organization? What does this mean? Thanks, Jared. Just to back up a wee bit first, um, I mean, you rightly pointed out the Russia situation. China hasn't figured very highly on any EU agenda so far this year. Everybody's hugely distracted. It's a huge issue, a massive, massive issue. I had lunch with somebody yesterday who said it reminds them of the build-up to 1914. So people are talking about it in those sorts of tones here in Brussels. And, you know, it's very worrying. China is obviously an important issue for Europe in terms of foreign affairs, but it's been massively overshadowed by everything that's going on on the immediate borders here. On the European Parliament, I mean, this was a debate that happened last night on Wednesday, which I followed. It was in Strasbourg in the, in the plenary session there, and it was a resolution on media freedom and freedom of expression in Hong Kong, uh, inspired or sparked by the closure of outlets such as Citizen News, Stan News, DB Channel, and the ongoing crackdown on civil society, the disbanding of trade unions, the disbanding of the likes of Amnesty International, leaving Hong Kong, citing pressure from the national security law and an inability to do their jobs properly. Now, the European Parliament is often dismissed as a talking shop. It's basically the only directly elected element of the European institutions. And they do a lot of these resolutions. It's not really an extraordinary event. They're essentially a laundry list of demands that they make of the European Commission on various issues, the broader European Union, the member states, as well as the Commission, which just to sort of clarify is like the secretariat. These are the guys, the sort of technocrats that make the laws and so on on demand from the parliament and from the member states. So last night they were discussing Hong Kong. They're going to have a vote on this later today. And yes, they reiterated calls, which they have been doing for a couple of years, for the European Union to sanction top officials from Hong Kong and China who have been involved in the rollout of the national security law and the electoral reform and just the the broader what they view as deterioration in the situation in Hong Kong in terms of its sort of democratic functionalities. So that none of that is really new. One of the things that was new, as you mentioned, was a call for the European Union to review its own policy towards Hong Kong's position at the WTO. Now, Hong Kong is an independent member of the World Trade Organization and the Hong Kong government will argue to the death that its customs remains separate and independent from that of China. So does Macau. The three of these, Hong Kong, Macau and China, are all members of the WTO. And, you know, we had this debate a couple of years ago 
when the United States stopped recognizing Hong Kong goods that were labeled as made in Hong Kong and they had to be, in order to be imported to the United States, they had to be relabeled made in China. You remember we talked about this at length on the podcast at the time. It was a really cool story to cover when I was on the trade beat. You know, so I was surprised to see this pop up in the resolution yesterday when I got a copy of a draft ahead of the debate. It's creative. You know, it's not just the same old stuff that they constantly bang on about human rights, uh, which is very important, of course. But I think when the European Parliament talks about human rights ad nauseum, people kind of roll their eyes a bit because they think, here we go again. Usually it draws a bit of a response from the Chinese government or the Hong Kong government but nobody's going to lose any sleep over it. I do think the WTO issue is a little bit different. I think if it was to be considered by the EU, if the EU was to review the agreement under which it considers Hong Kong a separate member, Hong Kong would be very upset by this. It's a big if, though. I think this is the important thing to sort of mention is that the demands of the European Parliament fall on you know receptive ears in the commission there's always a little bit of argy-bargy between them the parliament makes as many demands as possible and the commission sees it eventually if it can maybe find some low-hanging fruit with which they can sort of appease them throw them a bone but i think one thing to remember is that the european parliament has been instrumental in shaping the current state of eu china relations If you broadly look at some of the major issues over the last year that we've discussed at length on the podcast, sanctions, the comprehensive agreement on investment, which is the bilateral investment agreement between the EU and China, all of these came from Parliament, right? So the the parliamentarians who were always making such loud noises about China got sanctioned by China because they were making those loud noises. In turn, that led to the investment agreement, which had been negotiated for seven or eight years, being killed because the parliamentarians have the power to ratify this. You know, so whereas I would caution any error on thinking that this um, matter of WTO is, is going to become EU law or that the European Commission is going to pay it a blind bit of notice, it's also something you maybe shouldn't just dismiss out of hand. You know, these things can sometimes make an impact. We do see the European Parliament playing a very important role in shaping the current EU trade policy towards China. They're they're in close contact with their counterparts at the Commission in shaping issues such as a forced labour ban, which is not directly aimed at China, but, you know, the underlying subtext is what we see with with Xinjiang and the accusations of forced labour there, which are denied by China. You know, so I thought that was interesting. It sort of jumped off the page as me as something as being something that's new and something that I hadn't seen before. Immediately, I spoke to some people who know a lot more about these things than I do, some, some trade experts, professors and so on. And I sort of said, what do you think of this? Some of the knee jerk responses were that, well, China will immediately hit back and say, well, hang on. The European Union is a WTO member, but so are the 27 member states. So how dare they point at China as being a WTO member and Hong Kong and Macau as being WTO members? It's not exactly the same. It's kind of a false equivalence because on the one hand, you've got 27 countries which have designated their trade competency to the European Union. And on the other hand, you have, in the views of many, and you know, particularly those in the parliament to put together this document, you've got one WTO member, which is you know, encroaching on the sort of territorial independence of the other WTO members is not the same, but you know, you can see why these things may get argued out. It's a complex issue. 
And, you know, there are provisions within the WTO constitution that allow for customs unions to be members, you know, but again, I, w- I would sort of hasten to say this is not probably something we're going to see get taken up by the commission, but it's it's certainly an interesting angle. Finbar, let me just jump in there and just raise something else that I, I saw in your story that was quite interesting, and that was this call for the EU to preserve, and I quote, Hong Kong's democratic memory by assisting with the archiving, publicising, documenting human rights violations and to counteract the PRC by making books banned in Hong Kong widely available online. This sounds quite interesting. This, and I don't want to extrapolate too hard here, but this sounds very much like the EU's being asked to host the online archives of the Hong Kong media that has been shut down. Yeah, I guess that would perhaps be the the sort of sentiment behind that. Again, I wouldn't sort of read too much into it. However, I do know from my contacts with the EU office in Hong Kong that a lot of the stuff that the EU demands and the the, the sort of EU member states and that the lawmakers demand are not really possible to do in Hong Kong these days. They always say, you know, that you need to engage more with civil society. But look what happens when civil society tries to engage with the likes of the European Union or the US. It's seen as being colluding with foreign forces. It's seditious. People can get arrested and thrown in jail if they're engaging with the EU. But I do think that there is an effort from the European Union to do more in terms of educational exchanges, cultural exchanges, to support the free press where possible. So maybe this is something that might sort of fall within that category. Now, any European Union action on Hong Kong is is sort of, I mean, to, to be honest, it seems to have fallen by the wayside. You know, they couldn't agree anything earlier in the year. Everything they had some some new motions that they wanted to pass, and they were being blocked by Hungary. And since then, they've been overtaken by dozens of issues from elsewhere in the world. And you know, I I, I do think that the EU's plagued by neighbourhood issues over the last few months. You've got Kazakhstan, you've got the Ukraine, you've got Belarus. So much so that somebody said to me, this is great for China, you know, because this issue with Lithuania, which we'll probably get on to, would ordinarily be a massive issue. It is a massive issue, but it's struggling to get the sort of level of attention that it warrants, perhaps at a ministerial level between the EU foreign ministers, between the cabinets and so on. And that's just because, you know, people's attention spans are finite. These people don't meet very often. When they do, they talk about the most important issues and the threat of war on the European borders is the absolute most important issue. Indeed. So having just mentioned Lithuania there, let me just turn to that and say, you know, ever since we published your excellent podcast special, taking us inside the opening of the Taiwan representative office in Vilnius, that was back in November, We've seen quite the seesawing of opinion within Lithuania and the EU over this decision, but it's escalated to Slovenia this week. Can you tell us about the Slovenian link? Yeah, so the Slovenian Prime Minister, uh, Janez Jansa, gave an interview to an Indian publication, which was published on Monday. Bit of a sort of circuitous uh, way of this getting into the European news cycle, but it certainly hit home eventually, in which he confirmed that there were negotiations underway between Taiwan and Slovenia to host respective representative offices. No idea what they'll be called. You know, many other parts of Europe have Taipei representative offices. There's, there's absolutely nothing to suggest that this 
may go down the same route that Lithuania has, perhaps until you read further into his comments. Jansa w- went further rhetorically, I think, than even the Lithuanians have done in public, at least. I'll just read his quote. Taiwan, he said, are a democratic country. It's difficult to listen to a capital with a one-party system lecturing about democracy and peace around the world. You know, Taiwan is a country which is democratic and respects all international democratic standards, international law included. He went on to call for Taiwan to be admitted into the WHO. Don't forget, this was the original reason why China launched this trade war with Australia, because they were calling for Taiwan to be admitted into the WHO. So he's really pushing the envelope out here. He's an interesting character, Jansa. He's one of the central European strongmen. He's very much in the mould of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian leader. However, with a twist, Orban is Beijing's closest ally within the European Union, whereas Jansa is virulently anti-communist. He has no love for China. Just this week, the government has been discussing a sort of tech bill which would, would end up banning Huawei. You know, he's seemingly also not afraid to put noses out of joint in Brussels. So when I first saw these comments, I was thinking, oh my God, member states and EU institutions, after seeing the palaver that's been going on with Lithuania, are going to be on the phone to this guy saying, please, you know, stop talking about this. Please don't go as far as Lithuania have done. But I don't think he would pay them any heed. He sort of has built up this image as somebody who's happy to stand up to the liberals in Brussels and the sort of, you know, the woke agenda, similarly to Orban, you know, they, they sort of push back uh, and their, their bases are often very conservative. They push back against political correctness and sort of towing the Brussels line. So I, I don't think that any amount of convincing would sort of talk them back from the ledge on that. But, you know, as we've seen with Lithuania, these things grow arms and legs. Now, the trade embargo that we discussed with Lithuania has expanded to other European countries which have goods that contain parts made in Lithuania. So there's a lot of people who are very pissed off about this in, in across Europe. You know, they're wondering why are we getting dragged into a fight with China that Vilnius has picked seemingly for no reason. That's what they're thinking. They're, their words, not mine. So, you know, it's it's complicated. The European supply chain is very interconnected. Germany is often at the heart of all of it. Slovenia has a lot of inbound FDI coming from the likes of Germany, Austria, Switzerland, you know, so I think the early commentaries we had on the Lithuania situation was because it exports barely anything to China, then they're going to be fine. Disregarded, I suppose, the interconnectivity of the global supply chain, particularly here in Europe, you have German manufacturers like Bosch and Continental, the tyre company, which have been hugely caught up in this and it's causing huge ructions. So, you know, will Slovenia be next? We don't know. I don't know that there's any decision imminent on the Taiwanese office in Ljubljana, but we'll be watching that one very closely. And I'll just sort of explain a little bit what you mentioned about the ruptures and the sort of divisions in, in Lithuania. The president of Lithuania came out a couple of weeks ago and said that it was a mistake to call the Taiwanese representative office that name. You know, he said it's not a mistake to open it, but it is a mistake to, to give it that name. Now, this was interesting because, you know, it showed some chinks in the armory, like basically that there's not a united front. The president and the the government are elected separately. They're not from the same political party. There's no love lost between the foreign minister and the president. And this is seen as much as a domestic political dispute as it is an actual 
issue difference. Uh, you know, I, my sort of contacts in, in Lithuania say that the president doesn't necessarily feel that strongly about this, but he sees it as an opportunity to give the foreign ministry a bloody nose. But then uh, a week later, we had a poll commissioned by the foreign ministry, which showed that the vast majority of Lithuanians also disagree with the policy. You know, so it's it's getting very complicated in Vilnius. I speak to people in the government and they say that they're not for backing down, that, this, you know, they're going to maintain this line. And the Taiwanese have been smartly coming in with investments and, you know, offering dangling the carrot of like building semiconductor plants and stuff in Lithuania. So it's getting pretty messy. Uh, we'll see. There's going to be an EU foreign ministers meeting on Monday. Whether or not Lithuania will make it onto the agenda, I'm not sure. We'll probably learn more about that when we're briefed tomorrow by the various uh, missions here in Brussels. I don't think it'll take up too much time. As we mentioned, there's just too much else going on here. So, Fimba, it wasn't too long ago on this podcast we were discussing with you the European Union's adoption of an anti-coercion tool, which seemed primarily designed to hit back at exactly this kind of multi-level economic coercion that China is directing at Lithuania. Has anything happened on that front? Is that due to come into effect anytime soon? No, definitely not. It has to go through a long and meandering legislative process. It has to be negotiated by the parliament, by the member states. They all have to agree to it. You know, so we, what we saw in December was a draft. And, you know, I think that the French presidency of the European Council have said that they will accelerate this, but you know, I, I think most people don't expect to see it, probably not this year. I mean, maybe I'm being sort of cynical. And to be honest, it shows the lack of options that the European Union has in dealing with China, particularly in terms of this sort of coercive behaviour that they've been accused of. The coercion instrument, which would be ostensibly perfect for this, may not be usable for, for months, years. The other option is a WTO case. We know that that might take years and years and even when it does sort of get to that point the appeals court is dead so you may never have a, a resolution but even before you get to that the eu is currently gathering evidence to see whether there are grounds for a wto case and i know for a fact that they're having problems here because companies don't want to speak to them about this coercion because they don't want to be frozen out of the chinese market they don't want to go on the record I know business associations are having the same issues where their members are saying this is happening, but I don't want to talk to you about it. And what does that say? The coercion works. This is exactly what it's designed to do, to stop people from speaking out and to sort of exert influence over, over what people do and say. So, you know, you have to say from the part of China, it's been pretty successful. Well, the European Parliament is in session and you'll be watching that later today, a meeting coming up on of European foreign ministers We'll, of course, be watching all your coverage on scmp.com and following you on Twitter. Thank you, Finbar Birmingham. Thanks, Jared. Hey, I'm Jasmine, the other podcast producer here at the South China Morning Post. A reminder that our weekly podcast newsletter, The Listening Post, is back in production. That's where you get a recap of what we worked on and special highlights from our archive, all delivered straight to your email inbox. We'll also give you reviews of podcasts we've been listening to. These not only include shows from the US and the UK, but also from this side of the world, including the best new shows here in Hong Kong. You can subscribe to the listening post at scmp.com slash newsletters. We'll also leave the link in the show notes. That's the listening post delivered to your inbox every Friday.
Maria Xiao is a reporter on our Asia desk and has been reporting on East Asian geopolitics and news for the South China Morning Post. Hello, Maria. Hi, good morning. Maria, we've been hearing more and more of Japan's growing defence and strategic relationships with the likes of the US, the UK and Australia. But this week, you've been reporting on a quite high-level meeting between a number of Japanese and French ministers. Can you take us through this thing called the 2 plus 2? Yes, Jared. Well, as you know, um, this week, the defense and foreign ministers of Japan and France, they held what is widely known as a two plus two meetings, where both sides discuss defense cooperation agreement and have pledged to, among other things, ease restrictions on the transport of weapons and for joint training and disaster relief operations. And of course, these deepening cooperation and defense are clearly aimed at China and comes just months after French naval and ground units um, took part in military maneuvers with Japan and the United States in the southern part of Japan in May last year. And a few months later, Japan's um, Maritime Self-Defense Force also took part in an air defense exercise with the French Navy of New Caledonia. And of course, this joint training in September include objectives such as improving tactical interoperability, strengthening cooperation between the two partners, and improving mutual understanding of the issues in the Indo-Pacific region. And of course, according to Japan's um, Foreign Minister Yoshimasa Hayashi earlier this week, Japan and France share fundamental values and strategic interests. And when he said strategic interests, um, he was largely referring to Japan's concerns over the repeated intrusions by Chinese government vessels into Japanese territorial waters around the Senkakus, or what the Chinese call the Diaoyu Islands. While on the part of France, strategic interest essentially means this island territories in the Indo-Pacific, including Reunion in the Indian Ocean, and of course, New Caledonia, Wallace and Fortuna, and French Polynesia in the South Pacific. I think it's very interesting you talk about these islands just northeast of Taiwan. I'll get to that in just a second, because... If we look at France's historic interests in the Pacific region, it's down around Vanuatu and, you know, what was known as French Polynesia, much further away in the Pacific. But here they are up in the East China Sea, the South China Sea, working on these agreements with Japan. It's a long way away from what one might assume was France's strategic interest. But let's just drill a little bit more into this place either called the Diaoyutai Islands, if you're in Taiwan, the Sengoku Islands if you're in Japan, or the Daoyu Islands if you're in mainland China. I think it's safe to say these are contested space. Yes, of course. As we know, the Senkaku Islands, they are a group of uninhabited islets located in the East China Sea. Um, the China calls them the Diaoyu Islands. It is currently administered and controlled by the Japanese government, who has long maintained that this is an integral part of its territory based on historical facts and based on international law. But of course, this is um, disputed by China, who has argued that these are part of um, Chinese territory and therefore Chinese maritime vessels, including um, marine surveillance ships, administrative ships and fishing boats, they all have the right to operate in these waters. So as you can imagine, this has turned out to be a huge source of friction between Japan and China. And this is, of course, due to the island's strategic foothold in the East China Sea. They are close to important shipping lanes. They offer rich fishing grounds. 
and they are near to potential oil and gas reserves. And in recent months, we've seen Chinese government vessels increasing their maritime activities in the area. The Japan Coast Guard says that in total, there were 34 cases last year in which Chinese government vessels sail into Japanese waters, and that's up 10 from the previous year in 2020. And of course, last year, um, other Chinese ships had also reportedly sailed within the contiguous zone outside Japan's territorial waters on 333 days. That's almost like an entire year and almost the same as 2021's record of 332 days. So these islands form, you know, known as the island chain. What are analysts telling you about the increasing tensions in that part of the world and the importance or perceived importance by the militaries of all of these nations about these islands? Because of all these recent tensions, analysts have been telling me that there is really a need for countries outside the region to work closer with Japan in terms of strengthening defense ties. So according to a French analyst that I've spoken to, this is a sign that both Japan and France um, should and have taken their partnership to the next level, as well as to develop a network of strategic partners in the Indo-Pacific. They are also saying that this should also come as a signal to Beijing that like-minded countries are, are coming together and coordinating to ensure the region's stability, especially in ensuring the need to uphold the rule of law at sea. And this, again, is a clear warning to Beijing. And on the part of Japan, according to the Japanese analysts I've spoken to, Japan has to develop stronger ties with other like-minded countries due to what he calls the failure of the hub-and-spoke system. And as you know, um, the United States hub-and-spoke system is a network of bilateral alliances pursued by the U.S. in the region since the end of the Second World War, uh, where security is guaranteed by the United States. This has maintained security in the region for the past 60 to 70 years, but it is now becoming less effective, especially in dealing with China's rise and what many see as increasing Chinese provocations and military activities in the region. So in that sense, Japan has little choice but to share the military burden with the United States by forging stronger military ties with Australia, Britain, and of course, in this case, France. And what I found interesting was that this view is also raised by the Chinese analyst whom I've spoken to. He also mentioned the hub and spoke system, um, but of course he used it in a rather different way. His argument was essentially that the ability of the United States to dominate the security system is declining. It is becoming weaker. And this picture of a declining United States, as you know, whether militarily, economically, democratically, or even morally, is a growing and a prevailing view among many Chinese. Um, you can find these in Chinese press reports. You can find these in uh, many articles published by the Chinese academia. That's fascinating you talk about that. And I've read much the same myself about how much of the Chinese strategic vision is being coloured by the theory of American retreat from both the world stage as a leader in democracy and from the region, conceivably in a future where a potential future US president decides, well, let's not have the pivot as uh, posited by Barack Obama. Let's retreat from the region strategically for whatever reason, be it the cost uh, or, or for some other goals. So that's quite interesting. And, and as you say, Japan is really stepping up its military pacts and agreements over the past months. It signed a number of agreements with the UK and also this historic reciprocal agreement with Australia. Is this all about China? Have you ever seen China explicitly stated or is it just inferred? 
In many cases, I would say it's inferred because in many of the documents you've seen, in many of the discussions between the Western powers and their Asian allies, the word China has hardly been raised, but we can say that it's a bit like a bogeyman, which has always been there, it's always been referred to, but not in stark terms, but it's always at the back of the minds of policymakers, both in the region and in the United States, unfortunately. Maria, that's fascinating. Can I just sort of turn now and look to the the southern end of the South China Sea, the Philippines. You know, there was a discussion a while ago when uh, Australia, UK and the US announced this thing known as AUKUS, which was still trying to figure out exactly what it means beyond a massive sales agreement for weapons. But there was some discussion or fear about a Southeast Asian arms race being spurred on by this uh, announcement. And now we find in the past week that the Philippines has announced it's buying cruise missiles from India. Can you tell us more about this? And is this the beginning of a Southeast Asian arms race? Well, it could potentially be because um, this is really one of the most interesting developments, as you rightly pointed out. They are buying this supersonic anti-ship missile from India. And of course, uh, the BrahMos, as we know, is a universal long-range cruise missile system that can be launched from air, sea or land. According to the Philippine Defense Secretary, included in the package is the delivery of operators as well as the necessary integrated logistic support. So what this also means is that the Philippines is now the third country in Southeast Asia after Indonesia and after Vietnam to possess an anti-ship supersonic cruise missile capability. So obviously, this is a breakthrough in efforts by the Philippines to upgrade its defense arsenal, especially in strengthening its defense against China in the South China Sea. And of course, in recent months, we've seen very high-level standoffs between China and the Philippines over what Manila says is the presence of unauthorized Chinese vessels in the waters of the South China Sea claimed by the Philippines. And of course, what really raised eyebrows is that the Philippines is buying from India, which we know is one of China's main strategic rivals in Asia, in which it shares a serious and long-running and ongoing border dispute. So obviously, I think China is not going to be happy about the Philippines buying arms from India. But so far, we have not heard a response from Beijing. And one of the reasons I feel is because this cruise missile system is made not just by India, but also Russia. So essentially, this is a joint effort between India and Russia. And Russia, as we know, uh, shares strong ties with China, especially in recent months when both sides have strengthened their ties and in nuclear and space technology and in conducting maritime drills. And that's mainly because of their shared distrust and contentious ties with the United States and the Western world in general. So coming back to the question of the arms race, I think um, what's really interesting to continue watching is whether India will continue to sell arms to other countries, especially to China's neighbours. Because right now we're hearing that India is also in talks with Vietnam and Indonesia for the possible sale of the supersonic cruise missiles. And of course, if the sales do go through, we, we can only watch. I think China might be prompted to respond or if not to undertake um, certain countermeasures of its own. Yes, indeed. And given the Philippines' absolute prime strategic location at, at the entry point to the South China Sea, we will watch that. And I'm sure you'll be watching that and reporting on that with great interest. Now, before I let you go, Maria, there's another thing on the agenda later for today for Japan's Prime Minister Kishida. The headlines today are about Joe Biden having a very bad day in the Congress. But what's going to happen later today? 
Well, this online meeting between U.S. President Joe Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida is going to be the first substantial talk since Kishida became Japanese Prime Minister in October last year. Um, so what we've heard is that the talks are expected to focus predominantly on China's growing assertiveness and capability, as well as other issues ranging from North Korea's uh, missiles and Russia's aims in Ukraine. And of course, we understand that Japan has expressed very strong concerns about China's growing assertiveness and over possible tensions in Taiwan, not to mention North Korea, which fired a rapid series of missile tests just this month alone. So I think what we are likely to see is greater coordination during the talks between the US and Japan, including both sides focusing on practical measures to deter as well as defend against destabilizing behavior whether this comes from North Korea or whether this comes from China in the Taiwan Strait or in the South and East China Seas. So um, both sides are also said that they are looking to review their security strategy. And of course, we can expect to see greater details later this year. Well, we've spoken a fair bit about Japan's concerns over China's rising reach through the South China Sea, but I know there's a lot of concern about the fourth missile that's been launched by North Korea in their general direction so far this year. Very interesting times. Maria Siao, we will find, as ever, your work on SMP.com and on This Week in Asia. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. That's all for this week in China geopolitics. There's a lot for you to keep up to date with on this Friday, on this weekend. You will, of course, get the latest updates on Biden's meeting with Japan's Prime Minister Kishida, the analysis of the European Parliament's announcements on Hong Kong, and no doubt what will be an interesting response from Beijing. All of that on scmp.com. And don't forget, this week, the Inside China podcast is back in your podcast feed. Mimi Lau is hosting the Omicron variant episode we're looking at what's happening across mainland China as the Chunyun annual mass migration for the Lunar New Year collides with Beijing's zero COVID strategy. And of course, in Hong Kong, we are seeing outrage over the mass culling of hamsters and a restaurant industry in crisis as Hong Kong tries to maintain its own zero COVID strategies. If you want to fire any feedback, bouquets or brickbats about the China Geopolitics podcast, feel free to direct your missives on Twitter to the SEMP Political Economy team at SEMP Economy, or indeed, hunt me down at J underscore what. Happy to see you in my mentions. Big thanks to Jasmine Zer, who is somewhere on the other side of Hong Kong right now, producing this episode from her lounge room. I'm speaking to you from mine. My name is Jared Watt, hoping you can maintain the challenge of staying positive while testing negative in these trying times. Bye for now. <laughs>